Well, church, as you have a seat, if you would please uh, open up to the book of Ruth. If you have a scripture journal that we gave away a few weeks ago, it'll just, you can just open that up and hopefully that's a helpful tool for you. If you don't have one of those scripture journals, I believe we have some on the table outside in the, by the Get Connected banner. You're welcome to grab one of those and take it home with you. Ruth chapter 1. Uh, we're continuing in our summer series through the book of Ruth. It's been a great uh, start to the series the last couple of weeks. Ruth is this fantastic little short story. There's, it's only four chapters, but there's so much packed into it. It's uh, from a literary standpoint. Scholars love this book. They say it's, it's the, the mo- one of the most perfect short stories ever written. Even outside of biblical context and the theological implications that it shows us, it is just a masterfully written uh, piece of literature that is just rich and the characters are full and the story is compelling, but it goes so much more beyond that and it shows us truths of the kingdom of God, the character of God, the nature of redemption throughout this book, and it gives us a thread of hope in the midst of hopelessness. And so this is where we begin. I'm going to read um, the text for us. We're going to finish up chapter one, and then we'll begin to unpack some of it. Oh, before I start, happy Father's Day. Uh, great day. Happy dads. Thanks for being here. My dad is not here. He normally attends, so he's going to hear about that on, uh, from me, that he just decided to skip on Father's Day. So, Dad, uh, if you listen on podcast later, uh, I noticed you're not here. We'll talk later. Let's jump in. Uh, Ruth 1, 15 through 22. This is, Naomi, this is speaking of Naomi. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi is speaking to Ruth. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, but anything, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And so here we pick up this story. Naomi's husband has died. They have left and fled uh, Bethlehem in search of food during a time of famine. So Naomi is gone. Uh, She's left the promised land. Her husband, uh, after they arrive in this country of Moab, which was a uh, traditionally, historically, these enemies of God's people, they show up. Her two sons, uh, who in the story were named sick and dying, eventually get sick and die. But they, before they get sick and die, they take on uh, wives, Ruth and Orpah. And this was the, uh, the leaving of Orpah and the staying of Ruth, as we pick up in this story. And so here in this, 
Ironically enough, it's Father's Day. Usually we time this out really well. That didn't go so well this week uh, because we just preach verse by verse. There's not a mention of a man in this whole story or a father to draw on. It's, uh, it's a full cast of ladies. So guys, we're not going to press too hard in you this morning. It's, it's, it's all ladies here. It's Ruth, Orpah, and Naomi. Um, so that's a little comical. So here, but here we go. So this story has all this tragedy leading up to this point. It's got all this loss. There's, there's hopelessness in, in Naomi's story and in Ruth and Orpah's story. It's, it starts off heavy and it starts off like it's meant to grab you. It's meant to shock you the way that it's written. And so we have Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, an Israelite widow and her two daughters-in-law from this, na- this neighboring enemy of God. So picture Naomi, if you would. Picture her as she enters into the story. She is a widow in a foreign land. She has no significance. She's fled her homeland, her, the promised land of God's people. Um, she has no significance there. She has no husband to protect her and provide for her during this time. She has no sons. They've passed away. And consequently, because of this, During this time period, she has no social standing, and she has no hope to carry on her family line. Naomi is in a dire situation. She's in a dire situation. I think there are times in our own lives, even, that we can identify with Naomi's grief. We can identify with what Naomi needed the very most. And the thing that Naomi needs the very most right here is hope. And she doesn't have it right now. She can't see where it could come from. She doesn't see any hopeful path leading forward. She's hopeless. Her circumstances have her weighed so heavily down, right? Her husband's gone. Her husband left the promised land to go to fill his belly and do what was right in his own eyes. And Naomi is left picking up the pieces. So Naomi is in this place where she knows what to believe Right? She knows she believes in God. She knows there is a God, but she just doesn't like him that much right now in her life. Have you ever been there? Anyone can relate to that? God, what are you doing in my life? How did I get here? What is going on here? I don't see a way out. And she looks at her daughters-in-law in her state of almost despondency, and she's wondering what's going on. She's wringing her hands, and she's just saying, go back home to your land, to your people, to your gods. Just leave me. You don't need to stay with me any longer. Go back. And this is where we pick up from last week. Orpah leaves, but Ruth clings to Naomi. Look at this, in verse 14, they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, meaning like, I'm kissing you, I'm leaving, I'm gone. But Ruth clung to her. After a lot of weeping, right? I live with three ladies in the house. There there's, can be some weeping occasionally with an almost 11-year-old and a newborn. My wife, of course, never does. Um, these ladies are weeping, they're upset. Orpah makes the decision, she, just, she goes, she's leaving, I'm out of here. Right? However, Ruth clings tightly to her mother-in-law. The same word cling right here, it's the same word that we read in Genesis 2. At the very beginning, when God says uh, that famous verse, to leave and cleave or cling to one another, right? In relation to a husband and wife. So it's this like personal, relational, like loving Ruth clings to her. 
It's that same word that pops up here again. And we see Orpah here exit the story. We, we won't read of her again. She drops off the pages of Scripture from this point forward. And as, as I was reading this, it's, I almost get this. There's a, there's a shadow here of uh, now knowing the New Testament, knowing the ministry of Jesus. It almost seems there's a shadow of when Jesus calls his disciples, even embedded in this very story. It's this idea of counting the cost, of looking at what's coming up, what you're walking into, what God may be calling you to, and can you count the cost and walk into it? Jesus says it this way to his disciples. He says, take up your cross and follow me, right? Meaning there's going to be sacrifice and loss. In other portions, he says, uh, leave your father and mother and come and follow me, right? Or the path of destruction is wide, but the one to follow me is narrow, and so it's this idea of counting the cost of following where God is calling you to. And it just leaves to me these shadows where you see Orpah looking at the situation at hand. Uh, do I follow this Israelite woman back to her home that I've never been? I don't know these people and I don't know what's going to happen to me. Or do I just stay here? And Orpah just stays. Uh, she takes what's probably most practically makes sense. This will be what's best for me. Ruth, however, sees it differently. She clings to Naomi. She's devoted. She's faithful, right? They've been together for 10 years. It's not as if they just met one another. The story tells us that there's 10 years of history here with these daughters-in-law and Naomi. <coughs> Orpah makes a decision to go back. And Ruth clings and marches back to Bethlehem. Now, you can imagine one commentator says this. It's... it's it's funny <laughs> about this moment as um, Naomi and Ruth are marching back to Bethlehem from this enemy territory of the Moabites. One commentator says, there was nothing kosher about Ruth. He says, she knew she would be about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. <laughs> That's pretty good, right? Nice pastor joke, Yeah. But you can imagine the cultural like awkwardness and strangeness of the situation. She knew where she was marching into. She's not unaware of the tense relational, um, political, socioeconomic, all the things that uh, these neighboring nations would feel toward one another. And here is Ruth marching back into this culturally just incredibly awkward scenario. I don't know if you've ever had these happen in your life, these culturally awkward scenarios. I've had a couple. I talked to a restaurant owner. He sees them on a daily basis. It's the, it's the guy that doesn't read the restroom sign and just marches into the women's bathroom real quick because he's got to go. And then five minutes later or maybe two seconds later, depending on who's in there, realize I've just went into the wrong room, right? And you quickly, most awkwardly make that exit because you're like, oh my goodness, this is strange. I had a very, very awkward cultural moment uh, when I was uh, brand new in the ministry. I was a youth pastor. I was attending a seminary. We were studying and we were in this discipleship group for seminary students that we had one of our professors leading it. And we, we, uh, we, we went away for a retreat. It was like where we would share our life stories and um, uh, we would all cry and sing together, right? But we, so this guy had a place in New Orleans. And so we all went to New Orleans, and uh, I debated whether or not to tell this. I may regret it later, but I'm already into it, so here we go. Um, 
And so we're, we're walking the streets of New Orleans, these young seminary students and our professor, and one of our students, whoa, sorry about that, he, uh, we're, it's late at night in New Orleans, there's a lot happening in the streets um, of New Orleans, and there's all sorts of different establishments for different types of people uh, that, you know, all under the, uh, under the sun, right? And so some of them we have to shield our eyes and just look at our feet while we walk, right? Uh, but we're just trying to get back home. This gentleman, after the restaurant we'd been to, really has to use the restroom. And so he realizes he's not going to make it back in time to get to the place we're staying, so he's just got to run into one of these open uh, places that we're walking by. And he uh, runs into a place, and, uh, and he didn't realize the place that he ha- just so happened to run into was a drag queen bar. And a young seminary student with his professor just bolts into this establishment, uses the restroom, and then proceeds about three minutes later to come. He just walks in and he goes, oh, no, oh, no. And just he's like running out of there, right? He didn't know what to do. It dawned on him, I'm sure, very quickly uh, after, shortly after he walked in there, what was happening and the people that were surrounding him. And he was very, uh, he didn't know how to react. So he just quickly exited the situation. He pulled an Orpa very, very, very quickly, right? I don't know if you've been in these situations. This is Ruth. This is this is Naomi. They're walking back, and they're, these people that are going to see them and be encountered to them, they're going to be wondering, what are these people doing? And especially, what is she doing with her? It's going to be tense. They're not going to know exactly what to say, how to navigate these things, right? You can almost feel, the author wants you to feel the cultural awkwardness of this. It's like the odd couple, these two ladies, one Israelite, And one ancient enemy of God, a Moabite, about to walk into Bethlehem, the land of bread, back together. Yet she clings to her mother-in-law, it says. That's remarkable. Now, Orpah's decision was conventional wisdom. It was practical. I don't think I want to do that. I don't want to endure in that environment. I don't want to have to be, I I just don't want to be there. But Ruth's decision required something much more than conventional wisdom or practical application. It required faith. It required faith and a faith that we should imitate. It's the kind of faith that bears fruit in someone's life. It's a relational faith. It's an act of faith, right? So here we see this faith in this exchange between Naomi and Ruth. And, it's, and, and Naomi gives this final plea to Ruth to go back with her people. In verse 15, she says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and back to her gods. Just return after your sister-in-law. Once again, Naomi just pushes one more time. It's like peer pressure. Look, everyone's doing it. Everyone's leaving. Just please just go back with her. You don't want to come with me. It's going to be a hard road. It's going to be a hard road. And then we see Ruth's in this section right here, this stunning profession of faith. This is amazing. She says, do not urge me to leave or return from following you in this famous verse. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And here's the central point of this profession of faith. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Will be my God. And then she says, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me and more also, if anything, but death 
departs me from you. Ruth, in this section right here, in these verses, is not just expressing mere devotion to Naomi. She's expressing faith in God. This is not just, I really like Naomi, although she does. She's expressing her faith in God. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. Now, this is a poetic, so this is in quotations. If you read this in your scriptures, uh, this is this glorious profession of faith in verses 16 and 17. There's five lines in 16 and 17, and it's a Hebrew poem as it's structured in the Bible. So we have a piece of Hebrew poetry kind of embedded into this short story, and it's meant to highlight exactly what's being communicated here, exactly what's happening. Now, some of you may not like poetry. You may be more into Excel spreadsheets, right? But I like poetry, and I find this to be fascinating because of the way that it's structured gives us highlights and gives us insight into what and how this is meant to be read. So... I'm going to show it up here. There it is. It's already up there. So you kind of see how it's, uh, these verses, they kind of, they begin to mirror each other in a chiastic structure. The central line, I know it's really small, but we had to write it like that so you could see how the, the pattern of the poetry is written. So it says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And then it gets a little more, then it gets more in depth. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge, she's saying to my Naomi. And here's the main point, the central theme of this poem right here in the center. Your people shall be my people. And even more so, your God will be my God. And then she goes on, and these are like supposed to be mirrors of each other on either side of this, right? So it's like, don't urge me to leave, because then she's going to say, because... Where you die, I'm going to die. I'm here because your God is now my God. I have faith in this God. So this, this poem is building, and it says, May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. It's this beautiful Hebrew poem. The structure of it shows us the importance of that central line, Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. It's a calculated response. Ruth is counting the cost. She knows what's ahead, and she's willing to walk into it. She goes, because God is in the midst of it. Your God is now my God. It literally reads something like this. Your God, my God. Your people, my people. So Ruth is not pledging something in the future. She's stating something that she has already done. She's not saying, hey, once I get there, I'll figure this out. She's saying, no, right now, your people are my people. Your God is my God, and I'm following him, and therefore following you, right? Ruth's confession here is primarily not about her commitment to Naomi. It's about her commitment to God. This is remarkable. This is arguably, church, this is fascinating, one of the clearest conversion statements or stories in the Old Testament. This is amazing. She's saying the reason I belong to you, Naomi, is because now I belong to God. So I can cling to you. Now that your people are my people now. I belong with you because God now has me. Her statement is, is very similar to the statements we read when God made a covenant with his people. 
when God in the Old Testament says things like this, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. It's reminiscent of that, of God speaking to his people. And now Ruth says, your people are my people. Your God is my God. Ruth is declaring that the God who made a covenant with Abraham, this covenant, is now her God. And her conversion, if you're wondering, are you just speculating here? Her conversion is confirmed in the next chapter when it says, The God of Israel, under whose wings I have come to take refuge. That's Ruth 2.12. She says, I find shelter I find protection, I find peace, I find my comfort under the wings of the Lord God. That's a statement of personal trust in God. Let God have me, let him hold me. Ruth is essentially turning from all of her gods back home, all that was maybe safe and familiar to her, and saying, I found the one true God, or rather maybe he found me. Her conversion is similar to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, where it says we are to turn our backs on the gods of this world in order that I may have Christ. Orpah takes the broad road in this short story. Ruth takes the narrow road. Verse 18, Naomi doesn't give an answer. It's, it's a little strange. Leaves us kind of hanging, right? She kind of gives the cold shoulder. She tried one more time to kind of get Ruth to go, and Ruth says, gives this amazing, poetic, just gripping, where you lodge, I will lodge. And Ruth and Naomi basically says nothing, right? She doesn't say, wonderful, thank you so much, come with me, let's take a selfie, we're going to capture this moment and journal about it, we're going to look back on this, it's going to be tremendous. She just says nothing, right? She says nothing. She's just silent. And we learn because she's so bitter about where God has her in life. She's frustrated. She's not too happy. And so what do we learn from Ruth's conversion story right here? Well, the conversion of Ruth is one of the primary answers to all these dark providences that we read in chapter 1. All kind of the darkness, the grittiness, the death, all of the... Uh, all, all, of the, all, all that was wrapped up in the very beginning of Ruth that we went through the last couple of weeks, if you weren't here, I encourage you to look at it. It is an answer to all of these dark providences of chapter one. Ruth now will be a conduit through whom God pours his grace on the old, bitter widow, Naomi. The most unlikely one. For the struggling nation of Israel, God's people, Ruth we know later, will be the means through which the nation's greatest king will come. Out of Ruth's line comes David. Implications for David. And catch this. For a world separated from God, lost in idolatry, chasing other gods, chasing worldly pleasures, chasing things of the darkness, Ruth will extend the messianic line And Jesus Christ will come, both not just to the Jew, but to the Gentile, out of Ruth's line. A separate one, a Moabite, will come, our very Savior. So we need to see how pivotal her conversion is, her being saved by God. And for the immediate context of Ruth, it's incredible, but the context of this greater redemption that is weaved through this amazing story, redemption through what looks like bitterness. 
Sweetness, which is Naomi's name, sweet, can come even through those that are bitter. Even through bitter circumstances, these are weaved through. Secondly, we can see our own story in Ruth, can't we? Her transformation should encourage us. It should fill us with praise to, to God, to the Lord. Why? Why should this be so captivating to us? Why should this even be interesting? Why do we even read this? Is it because it's just fascinating? No, because we too were once outsiders from God, without hope, wandering, sojourners, didn't know where to go, didn't have a hope, couldn't do it on our own. But God has made us alive to him through Christ our Lord. God intervened. We too were dead in sin. We were alienated from God. We were worshiping other gods. But in Christ Jesus, we've been brought into a relationship with God. If you remember from Ephesians, we preached through that, right? We've turned to the living God. God, your, your people are now my people. Your God is my God. So church, we can learn of our own story that we can never get over this because it's all of grace. It's all of grace. What else do we see? We see the relationship of personal faith here and a community of faith. This is one of the themes of Ruth. A personal faith, a conviction of this is my God, I'm going to follow him, he's going to transform my heart, he's going to change me, I'm going to seek to, to know him and walk with him, but also a community of faith. I'm now saved into a people of God, a community of God. It's not, I'm not, it's not just me isolated, it's not just, just my relationship with the Lord, but God has saved me vertically and then saved me horizontally into a people of God. So the phrase, my people, emphasizes that God has saved us into a community of faith. Faith is personal, but it's not only personal. It's communal. That's why we gather in rooms like this with God's people. That's why we meet in homes, break bread together, have relationships, spur one another on to faith and godliness. We cannot do it alone. You're saved into a people of God. Now, sometimes that community of faith that God saves you into can be difficult to love at times. Uh, and the only reason it gets difficult to love at times is because there's people involved. Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah? Myself included. Church would be really easy if it weren't for all the people. Right? Or imagine uh, if it was just, right, just, just full of Naomi's, right? Naomi, Naomi's in a bad spot right now. She's bitter. She's angry. She's frustrated. Ruth just gave her this most poetic, like, conversion story ever seen in the entire Old Testament. And Ruth goes, oh, okay, I guess you're coming with me. She's just not in a good place. Churches are filled with Naomi's. I'm a Naomi sometimes. Just ask Josh. Right? <laughs> What's going on here? What am I doing wrong? Ah. Right? And he's like, plenty. Okay, moving on. Um, it's not therapy. That's for later. So, church, just practical application. Don't, don't look for a church with nothing but Boazes and Ruths. It doesn't exist. Don't go looking for a place or a community that's just only filled with kinsmen, redeemers, and the most like, amazing, poetic, faithful people that are just... That, that place doesn't exist. 
We all have different seasons. And we need one another on purpose when we go through seasons of bitterness, right? When we go through seasons of discouragement. Maybe God has you in that place so that you can come alongside someone who is in a very bitter and tough time and you can speak hope and be faithful to them in the midst of that struggle. That's what church is for. Not just for ourselves. Finally, Ruth's conversion should motivate the church to mission. Um, what do I mean? God still saves outsiders. That's why we plant churches. That's why we're doing this. That's why we gather together. That's not just for ourselves. We plant churches. We send missionaries. We support ministries so that the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God saves those that are far off and can bring them near to him into a family of faith. We do that because God is still in that business. He's not done. And so that's why we gather. Ruth, like Rahab, the outsider, heard the mighty deeds of God and somehow the Lord brought her to faith. God is still in that business. Ruth lived with Naomi for 10 years. And while we read it here, Naomi didn't seem to be the most winsome uh, evangelist, right? She's very bitter right now. But at some point, Ruth heard of this God. She heard of the great wonders of God. She heard of God's people. She heard of the land that she came to. And Ruth said, I want to follow that God. I want to be a part of those people. So pray that God would use you to lead a Ruth to faith. Right? So we're kind of, we're posed with two roads here, right? In, this, in these very few verses we've gone through. It's taken us three weeks. It's the broad road of Orpah or the narrow road of Ruth. Um, and church, I pray for us that we take that narrow road even when we count the cost because it's worth it. You will not regret following Jesus. I can guarantee you that. It is not a promise of ease. It is not a promise of luxury. It is not a promise of comfort but it's a promise of the very presence of God walking through it and with you and for you and God surrounding around you a very people that are for you. That's good news. That's a good place, even in bad circumstances. So very lastly, we have the arrival as we finish up chapter one. Verses 19 through 22. Verse 19 says this. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And Naomi shows up, right? She shows up unannounced, and it creates a stir. It creates a buzz in the town. The people knew Naomi. It's a small town, Bethlehem. Naomi walks back. Naomi has changed physically. She's changed emotionally. She's changed, obviously, relationally. Where's her husband? Who's this girl with her? She's not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. So something's happening here. There's a buzz that's happening here, right? And they're like, wow, Naomi is, who knows what they're saying. Naomi is really different. She's really let herself go. Whatever the, whatever the town gossip that's bubbling up, right? You're like, geez, she looks awful, right? I don't know, I don't know what's being said, but the town is astir uh, about Naomi and this random enemy of the Lord from a foreign nation walking back in. So they're very perplexed, to say the least. She left the pleasant one. Remember? She left sweetie pie, sugar, could be translated, sweet one. And now she returns grief-stricken. She's not doing well. All right? Verse 20a. She just, I mean, you have to admire her transparency here. 
She doesn't fake it. At least you can say that, right? She's very candid. Uh, and, they, and then she, she basically, remember, she leaves being sweet, and she says, don't call me sweet. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter woman, Mara. Call me Mara, she says. Now, Mara means bitter. It means bitterness, especially in context of water or food. And this word Mara actually has a rich history. So uh, the, the original readers that were reading this it would, have, it would have piqued a story in their brain, specifically in Exodus, when God's people were grumbling against God as they're in their wilderness wandering. And they're wondering, what is God doing? What does he have for us? As he, he, he must hate us. He just, he's left us here wandering, even though they've just been freed from slavery. And now God's leading them to the promised land. God's people, good thing we never do this, grumble and shake our fists at God and wonder what he's doing, right? And so the, the Exodus tells of this story. And in the midst of the murmur, in the midst of the wilderness, they come upon some water, and they're thirsty. And God told them to throw a log into the water that was bitter because they couldn't drink this water. It was too bitter to drink, and so it wouldn't sustain them. And they're mad at God, and they're grumbling against God because of this. So God says, throw a stick or throw a log into the water. And God made that which was bitter sweet again. So God did a work for them. God did a miracle for them. So that in their wandering in the wilderness when they're tempted to grumble, when they're tempted to shake their fist, they would remember as God's people that even when we stumble across something bitter that we cannot put to our lips, God takes that which is bitter and can make it sweet. And it could be for me. And, they're called, and, they're, and God's people are asked to remember that. They're asked to remember that. Um, so when we feel this way, I think there's an application here for us that we're to remember the Lord's grace. When we're feeling bitter, when we're feeling, God, what are you doing here? Why, why, Why do you have me here? We're to remember the Lord's grace in our lives, that God is in the business and in the habit of taking that which is bitter and making it sweet. That's one of the reasons we take the Lord's Supper as, as God's people that he asks us to. The call in taking the Lord's Supper is to remember. It's a call of remembrance. It asks us that we would remember the work that Jesus did for us on our behalf. That God can take the most bitter of things, namely the cross, an instrument of execution, and can bring redemption and salvation to those who are far from him because of it. So when we take the Lord's Supper, similarly, that God took something bitter and made it sweet, we remember the goodness of Jesus. That God, in his grace and mercy, took something bitter, and now can give it to us, and it's sweet, sweetness to us. Christ emptied himself. He left heaven and earth in order to give us the fullness of himself, eternal life. So in our bitterness, we're asked and called to remember. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. So Naomi vents here, verse 20, 20b and 21. She says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She's upset. She attributes her pain to God. She said, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Strikingly here, uh, there's no sense, there's no even hint of personal accountability 
in her frustration at all. That's us. God, why did you do this to me? I can't believe I got here. God, I can't believe. You know, we, just, we, we like to shift it over to something else, namely God at the very end of it, right? If you run it all the way up the flagpole, you'll end up shaking your fist at God. She shifts the blame entirely to God. Yet here, in the midst of the darkness of Naomi, God is working out his sovereign, saving purposes. This is amazing. Last verse. We see a glimmer, see a glimmer of hope, glimmer of light in this dark first chapter. Verse 22, so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So we read this word of hope at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now you're like, that doesn't sound very harmful. Hopeful, it's barley. What's that used for, right? So it's a new beginning in in an agrarian culture, in an agrarian society. Remember, they left and fled because there's no food. There is food now in the house of bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. Food has returned. It is a new beginning agriculturally, and it's a foreshadowing of a new beginning in many other ways for Ruth and Naomi. It's a new beginning. At the beginning of the barley harvest, they enter back into the house of bread, and once again there is bread. God has visited his people. Ruth 1 begins and ends by talking about bread. It begins with famine in the house of bread, and it ends with the beginning of God returning and bringing food to his people. This change of circumstance is owed to God's intervention. He visits his people. He provides for them what we need. And remember this, as we know the end of the story, God provides even in the midst of darkness. Out of Ruth's line, out of her faithfulness, will come one day the very king, David. And David's greatest son will be named Jesus. God provides even in the midst of darkness. In Bethlehem, in this very same town, shepherds would one day come and they would see this Messiah born. Jesus would be born in the house of bread. And he would declare himself later in his ministry to be the very bread of life, that which sustains, that that which brings hope, that which is manna for the heart and soul. Only in Jesus can we find this ultimate satisfaction. Only in Jesus can we find our eternal life. We're empty until we come and experience the fullness of his grace. And that which he provides and fills us of. Bethlehem, this little, almost no-nothing town just five miles south of Jerusalem, was seemingly insignificant comes these grand schemes of life and salvation. But from Naomi's insignificant, insignificant family in this insignificant town will come the Savior of the world, the very King of Kings. They don't know what we know. Naomi didn't know that the king of kings was coming. That God can take that which is bitter and make it very, very sweet. God is in the very business of all of the details of our lives. That's what Ruth tells us. Even when it doesn't feel like he is. He's still involved in the details. He reigns over all things. And he's accomplishing his saving purposes. So church, we're we're to live in that reality. 
We're to live in, in that assurance that the God of heaven, through Christ Jesus our Lord, is ruling and reigning even in all the little details of our lives and we can trust him, even when our circumstances and even when our heart is telling us, no, he's worthy of our trust. He shows time and time again that he can make sweet that which seems bitter. That's good news. That's good news. And so the band's gonna come back up and we're gonna respond by taking the Lord's Supper and reminding ourselves this morning and remembering that God took the most bitterest of all the roots, the very cross, the very death of his only begotten son and brought about the most sweetest reality in our lives that we could ever imagine. Salvation and hope and a family and the people of God. And so when we take the bread, the Bible says, Jesus asks us, we break it. It reminds us, reminds us, and we're to remember that his body was given for us. Or to remember his sacrifice. We're to remember that he's the very bread of life that we need. He's the one that sustains us. He's the one that fills us. And we take the cup of the juice. It reminds us and we remember that it was his blood that was shed for us. That something like shed blood in the bitterness of death can result in resurrection and new life through belief in him and hope in him. And that's what we bank our lives on. That's where we bank our hope in. So we're gonna come as you're ready um, after I pray. When I say amen, uh, we're gonna have those that are gonna be serving on either side. Let's come and remember Jesus through the Lord's Supper this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you are in the business, are in the habit, that it's in your character of taking that which is bitter and making it sweet. Even when we can't see it, even when we don't know and we can't get our mind around it. God, I just, I, I wanna pray for um, those sitting here this morning, walking through bitterness, walking through maybe hopelessness, um, that you would remind them of that that you would help them remember that that's the God that you are. And Lord, that they would cling to you as their hope. They would cling to you as their salvation. That we would all cling to you as our great rescuer. And you can fill us with hope and life and redemption, even in the midst of what's bitter. Thank you that you do that. We need you, Jesus. We lean on you. We remember you. It's in his name we pray. Amen. And come forward as you're ready to take the Lord's Supper.